to turn in your Bibles to the book of Malachi. We've been in Malachi for a couple messages, and unless something changes, I think we've got a, a couple more to go in Malachi, and that will conclude our Minor Prophet series. I have no idea where we'll go after the Minor Prophet series is over, but I have certainly enjoyed studying in the Minor Prophets and learning more about them. I want to direct your attention to Malachi, the second chapter, and we're going to pick up in verse 17. If you recall the previous messages on Malachi, the first one was Malachi's message of mercy, which talked about the first part of the book, the chapter of Malachi, first chapter of Malachi, where the Lord explained to them, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated, that his love for Israel and his hatred, his love for Jacob and his hatred for Israel. Esau was the answer to the question that they have, does the Lord love us? The next message was Malachi's message to ministers, which he specifically spoke to the priests who were the ministers in the Old Testament. And so I debated over exactly how to present this message, but I think this is the best way to do it that will stick in our minds. And the, the question we ask tonight that is the title of this message is are we robbing God? Are we robbing God? Because that's a very explicit illustration that the Lord gives in the third chapter. Let's read in Malachi 2 and 17. And we're going to read several verses. Ye have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet ye say, wherein have we wearied Him? And the Lord says, when you say, everyone that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord, He delighteth in them, or... Where is the God of judgment? Behold, the Lord says, I will send my messenger and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. But who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire. And like Fuller's soap, which was a cleaner's soap, we might say today, the laundromat or so forth. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord, as in the days of old, as in the former years. And I will come near to you to judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against false swearers and against those that oppress the hireling and his wages. You see, all of these things were going on. Against the widow and the fatherless and that turn aside the stranger from his right and fear not me, saith the Lord of hosts. For I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. This is God's answer to their charge against God. They were saying, Lord, we heard that you were like such and such. You were, you were a certain way, but you've changed. Okay, this is God's answer. I change not. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. Even from the days of your fathers, you are gone away from mine ordinances and have not kept them. Return unto me and I will return unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. But ye said... Wherein shall we return? Lord, we didn't know that we had left you. And here he goes in verse 8. Will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. But ye say, wherein have we robbed thee? You see all the questioning of God that's going on in this lesson, in this teaching here? He said, in tithes and offerings, ye are cursed with a curse. 
For ye have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in mine house. And prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, and there shall not be room enough to receive it. Listen, these people are charging God with, what's wrong with you, God? We heard this about you. Why are you letting us down? One of the commentators that I read, I thought was very, very on point of what's going on here. And he says this, all the people were guilty of many serious sins. The priests were offering blemished animals and sacrifice. They were going through the motions with their religion. Many were divorcing their wives and marrying unbelieving women. Most had been disobeying by withholding tithes of the harvest. And they were all accusing God of loving them only half-heartedly, being unjust in his dealings with them because they did not prosper. If they could have put their feelings in the, into words other than the words that are recorded by Malachi, they might have said, we have been utterly faithful in fulfilling our responsibilities towards God. Never mind the divorce is the divorces and mixed marriages. Never mind the failure to tithe. Never mind the failure to do offerings. But we keep our side of the bargain through many things that seem important to us. The problem is that God has not kept his side of the bargain. We have been faithful, but he is unfaithful. In short, they're saying obedience to God does not work. God has not prospered us as we think he should. And the fault is God's alone. And of course, the answer that God gives to them is, I have not changed. God does not change. So what's the real problem here? The problem is, is that the, the people were failing to change or the people had changed to such a degree that they couldn't see who God was anymore. They're accusing him of being unfair because they're not getting what they think they should. And they look at it and they say, well, God's not punishing these wicked over here. He's just not being fair. So it's very interesting. This is kind of a side note to the message. But if you read the last two chapters here, Malachi 3 and 4, the Lord not only refers to his son coming to pay for sins in mercy, but he also refers to the, the last day of existence. He refers to Christ's first coming when he took on flesh, and he refers to a day that he says would burn as an oven, the, day, the last day that this world is in existence. It's interesting how he points to those two days of great judgment because the people were saying, this isn't fair. We're not getting justice here. And they wearied the Lord with their attitude. Think about how many people, I include myself in this. I wonder how many things that I say about the Lord or things that I do that wearies the Lord. I can't believe he's saying that again. I can't believe he is doing that again. See, they were wearying God because they were misrepresenting the character of God. They were representing God as though he had changed and he's not really all that it was cut out to be. And they were looking at it as though this was a bargain, like they were bargaining with God. It reminds me of Jacob when he left home. You remember his brother Esau wanted to kill him? And so his mother said, you got to get out of here. So Jacob leaves and he goes out into a waste howling wilderness. And I believe that that's the place out there when Jacob saw the ladder and so forth. I believe that's where Jacob was born again. That's just my personal belief. But he goes out there and God, he, God finds him out there in a waste howling wilderness. And when he wakes up from that dream, he says, 
oh, well, you know, if God will be my God and will do these things for me and bring me back to where I was before, then He will be my God. You see, He was bargaining with God. Your, your salvation and even your temporal salvation, your temporal deliverances are not bargaining tools with God. They're mercies of God, you see? And that's what the, these folks are missing. They don't understand that it's the mercy of God that they're not consumed. It's God's mercy that they need to focus on instead of thinking, well, the Lord's letting us down. They were wearying the Lord by misrepresenting His character. They said, we want justice. But they should have been asking for mercy. And God says, I never change. I'm consistent. You're the one that has changed or you're the one that needs to change. Now, those of you who maybe didn't grow up in the Primitive Baptist Church, I don't know this for sure, but even when I attended a few services in other denominations through the years, especially when I was young, it was fairly common to hear messages preached on Malachi 3 about tithing in other orders. Now, the honest commentators, if you'll read commentators about you know, tithing from the law versus the New Testament mode of giving, which, is, which far surpasses the law command of tithing, the honest commentators will say there's not a line in the New Testament that commands tithing because we're no longer under the law. But how many times, and maybe those of you that did not grow up Primitive Baptist and went to other churches, maybe you heard messages from Malachi 3 in an effort to try to get people to give more. Okay? That's what it's often used for in the denominational world. To teach people, you need to look what God says about tithing. And you need to do this more or better or you're not doing it good enough. And, and it's sort of a, a mallet, if you will, that often is beat over the heads of God's people and said, give more, give more, tithe more, tithe more because of what Malachi 3 says. But that's missing the whole point. The Lord uses that one illustration. He could have used many because He spoke about how the fatherless and the widows and the strangers were being defrauded and forsaken and so forth. But He says, will you rob God? The word rob, it literally means to defraud. The purpose of teaching what he says there about robbing God is not to get the people to give more. It's to get them to stop defrauding God, committing a fraud on God. You know what a fraud is? Usually a fraud involves a promise that someone makes and they say, I will do this for you. And they don't do it. Or they maybe induce someone to take some kind of action and they don't follow up. Or they say, uh, I will give this to you, and they don't do it. And you find out later, I was defrauded. I, they told me they were going to do this, and they defrauded me. And this is what the Lord is talking about here. They were robbing him in more ways than just tithing. See, he just uses that as an example. So this is a side note also, but understand that Malachi, the third chapter, it can be used to teach you know, we should give and, and we should give in a consistent way. But the primary context of it is not just about giving. It's about the problem that God had with these folks here in Malachi who were not doing what they had agreed to do. It's about defrauding God, robbing God. So think about the context of this. He points to their failure to tithe and offer as merely a simple illustration of the bigger problem. Now, remember I told you before 
that you have the messenger referenced in here. We're going to come back to the first part of the third chapter where he says, behold, my messenger. But I found it interesting that the word messenger, when it is used as a name, is the word or the name Malachi. So you could literally say that the title of this minor prophet is my messenger, because that's what Malachi means. And it's interesting to me how that phrase occurs again and again, where he says, behold, my messenger. There's several times here in the book of Malachi. And the Lord is saying, you're complaining and you're fussing about me and what you think I'm not doing for you. And he says, but there's something coming. There's something coming. So let's talk about ways that we rob God. Obviously, the illustration that is given there, we don't want to miss the teaching. He says, you agreed to keep the law. He says that to the people. You agreed to keep the law, and yet your priests are offering these terrible sacrifices, these animals that are not even, that they have blemishes and they're not the appropriate kind of animal. And on top of that, you're supposed to tithe, you're supposed to give 10% of your crops when they come in. Remember, the idea of tithing back in these days, it would not have at all been like writing a check. You know, it would have been taking your goods to the temple. If you live far away, now you might sell your part of your crop and cash it in for silver or gold or denarii is what they use in in these days and take it to the temple and, and give that as a representative of what. But most of the time you were actually bringing in food and goods and even animals. Okay, and he says, you're not doing that. Here's why. It's because the Levites lived off of that. You see, the tithe that was brought in there was not just thrown away. Some of it was sacrificed, but it was given to the priests. And you remember, if you listen to the message a couple weeks ago, he had a charge against the priests because the priests were saying, well, the people aren't doing what they're supposed to do, so we might as well give up. And then he's charged the priests. He says, priests, you're not doing what you're supposed to do. You're not living like you're supposed to live. And by the way, those of you maybe that grew up in other denominations and heard messages about Malachi 3 and tithing and all of that, I bet you didn't hear the charge that that Malachi had against the people, that God had against the people from the previous chapter, which was your marriages are shambles in shambles. Your, Your family and the divorce and all these things that are going on, you know, that's another part of the charge that he had against the people, especially against the priests. You know, the priests were supposed to be the examples. The priests were supposed to walk in a way that set an example for the people. And they were marrying and divorcing their wives and not taking care of the things they were supposed to take care of, not taking care of their children. The priesthood was a wreck. So the Lord said, I'm I'm ordering you, I'm commanding you to straighten up, to repent. And so here we see where the people were not bringing in what was under the law. The, the tithe that was under the law or the offerings. Notice it says the offerings. They said, how are we robbing you, Lord? You, that's, a, that's a serious charge. You're saying we're robbing you. And he said, you're robbing me because you're defrauding me. You're saying one thing, but you're doing another. Is that not a charge that I know without a doubt that the Lord has against a lot of modern religion today? You know, you can post whatever you want to post online and make it look good. But the proof is, how are you living? Are you really what you have, the image that you have put out there, that, are, that I have put out there? 
that we have put out there. You see, you can make yourself look as good as you want like these folks were doing. But the, as the old saying goes, the devil was in the details. See? He said, you're cursed with a curse because they were robbing God. Think about other ways that we rob God. Here they were, he was given the illustration of one way they were robbing him was in giving. They were not following the procedure of giving under the law. Another way that you could rob God is, is rob him of the prayers that he expects you to pray. You say, Lord, this is my prayer time. And I've been guilty of this so many times I'm ashamed of it. You know, here's my prayer time. Here's my prayer location. I'm going to be there. I'm going to do it. I'm committed. And the next thing you know, something comes up. You know, somebody comes over or you got to run to this. And you, oh, I forgot. I've robbed God of the prayers and praise that are due to him. See, there's many ways that we can rob God. What about robbing God of your body? You ever thought about that? You say, well, my body's my body. You know, that, that is a common misconception and not just for women, okay, where women say, well, it's my body. I can do whatever I want. You know, men can say the same thing. As a child of God, let me say this, to the wicked of the world, to the goats of the world, whoever they are, well, maybe I'll give them that. You know, it, maybe it is your body because you're not a child of God. But for the child of God, it is not your body. You're a bought with a price. You don't own your body. You say, well, I'm in control of where I go and what I do. And that's why you want to be careful and not rob God or defraud God with the purchase possession that he has purchased, which is you. See, you don't own your body. Christ owns your, he owns your body. He purchased it on the cross. You say, well, I just thought he had my spirit. He's got your spirit and he's got your body and he's going to resurrect it one day. See, he owns everything there is about you. Not only that, he owns the world. He owns the universe. He owns the cattle of a thousand hills, as the psalmist says. All the gold, silver, but he owns you. All, all the gold and all of the silver and all of the cattle of the world is nothing to compare. He's going to burn all that up one day. Do you understand? The minerals of this world, the all, the, all the things that we see that are so valuable, the gold that's in Fort Knox and wherever else it may be, that means about as much as a flame to him. He's going to burn it up, but not you, child of God. You are so precious to him. You are purchased. And it says in the New Testament, you are bought with a price. And you know what that price is? It was the blood of Christ. It was the body of Christ. It was the sacrifice of the Lord. So we should not defraud God and just say, well, I can do anything I want to with my body. I need to take care of my body. Why? Because it doesn't belong to you. Don't defraud God. Don't rob God of your body. And what about this? You can rob God of the Sabbath that he is due. In the Old Testament, the Sabbath was the Saturday, right? You understand that? And I mean, everything shut down on the Sabbath. Now, this convicts me when I think about Sunday. Because the New Testament Sabbath, if you will, the New Testament day of worship is Sunday. And you think about all the things that go on on Sunday, some of which I participate in. I go out to eat a lot of times on Sunday. And, you know, those folks that are fixing the meal and doing all of that, you know, they most of the time, unless they went to an early church service, they've missed church, you know, because that establishment is open on Sunday. I'm not saying I'm going to quit going out to eat. But at the same time, you know, think about the shops and the stores. You know, there used to be laws even on the books against that. There were Sunday laws where you could not be open on Sunday. It was against the law. The ACLU obviously had a, a field day with that because those things are no longer laws. 
But you think about it. In the days of when the Sabbath was the holy day, the high day, weekly day of the Lord, I mean, everything shut down. The Jews were, and the, the Pharisees were so fanatical about the Sabbath day and the laws and, and having a day of rest. You see, the, the Sabbath day was more than, than just about you know, shutting everything down because the Lord said so. It was, a, it was a built-in day of the week to give the people rest and recovery so they wouldn't have to wear themselves out like we so often do. It was a shutdown day. It was for God's glory, for sure, but it also was for the health of the people. And the Pharisees were so fanatical about it that they interpreted many of the laws in such a fanatical way. I think I've shared this with you before, but you could not even drag... You know, they had dirt floors in most of their houses. Some of them had tile floors, but in a house with dirt floor, you, you could not even drag your chair across the room because it would create a furrow in the ground. And, and the law said you can't plow, you can't plant, you can't do anything like that on the Sabbath. And they'd say, well, violation of the law, you dragged your chair across the floor and there's a little furrow there. Not like you're going to plant anything there, but you created a furrow. You see how fanatical they were about the Sabbath day? Everything had to shut down. So, you think about our Sunday Sabbath. Now, so much goes on. Stores remain open. Establishments that serve food remain open. Shops remain open. There's so much that goes on. And so much of it even prevents, often, or gets in the way of God's people. You say, well, you know, I, I can't get to this on Saturday, but Sunday afternoon, you know, I can go and do thus and such. Look, I... I'm not trying to get into your business. Well, I guess I am in your business, but think about those things. Meditate on those things. Am I going too far with what I'm doing on a Sunday? Let me read this to you. If you think that's a little over the top, then you're going to love this. This is the account of a Welsh preacher named John Elias. And this was many, many years ago. And this was in the late 18th and early 19th century Welch preacher, John Elias. Listen to this. In his day, there was an annual harvest fair held in the North Wales town of Rudland, a town that has given its name to one of our great hymn tunes. At Rudland Fair, farmers would be hiring laborers and many things would be sold for work on the land. The fair was held on Sunday. And crowds of people would throng into the town. The bars were all open. There was music and singing. The laws of God were broken in a variety of ways. Elias knew about Rudland Fair and was increasingly disturbed that people from the, that part of Wales should be so disobedient to God. One day, he decided to go to Rudland Fair on a Sunday afternoon to preach. He took a number of Christians with him, brave souls, right? And together they arrived at Rudland in the afternoon when the fair was at its busiest. They went to one of the public houses or bars called the New Inn. It had three steps in front leading to a small porch. So John Elias climbed those steps and told the Christians who had accompanied him to sing Psalm 24. That was a very common thing to sing the Psalms. They called it the Psalter back in those days. And they sang, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. Surprisingly, it seemed, the noise of the fair began to die down and people by the thousands came close 
to the new end to see what was going on. By the time the singing had stopped, there was already a change. Many were struck even by Elias's earnest appearance. Some started to hide what they had purchased. Elias started to pray, and as he prayed, tears ran down his cheeks. Silence crept over the crowd. It was astonishing. When Elias had finished praying, he opened his Bible and read, Six days thou shalt labor, but on the seventh day you shall rest. Even during the plowing season and harvest you must rest. Quoting from Exodus 34. Then he started to preach as a divine messenger sent that day to Rudland Fair. His listeners became afraid, and many began to weep when Elias shouted out, Oh, robbers, robbers, you are robbing the Lord. You are robbing my God of his day. What do you think they'd do to me if I went over to Midtown Village on a Sunday afternoon and started preaching that? That's what, that's what John Elias did. When John Elias finished preaching that summer afternoon in 1892, that was the end of the fair. There has never been another Rudland Fair. I wonder what John Elias would say if he could see how Christians spend Sunday today. Would he not say that we, are, we too are robbers of God? That we are robbing God of His day? Think about it. Do you meditate on things like that? It hasn't always been this way. If one of you came to me and said, Brother Tim, you know, I'm, I'm just convicted. I really don't get any business. Brother Tim, I'm just convicted. You know, if we don't take a stand against participating in things that go on on Sunday, well, then how will there ever be a change? So if one of you said, I think instead of going out to eat on this particular Sunday where this establishment is open, why don't we come over to my house, either eat there, or why don't we come over and take a Sunday for an hour or two and, and fast <laughs> during that time and pray that the Lord would convict or what if, what if somebody got really brave like John Elias and said, well, let's go down there on the corner of the street where that busy restaurant is and let's preach. Robbers of God. Robbers of God. <laughs> that makes me nervous and sweaty just thinking about it. But that was a common thing back in those days. This preacher had it in his heart and he went and he sat up on the street corner and he began to preach. Thousands came. Today, I dare say that I don't think any of you would. If it was me, I hope you wouldn't. But I dare say that they try to lock you up. They say, that guy's lost his mind. But what does it take to wake us up? Are we robbing God of his day? Are we robbing God of the prayers that we owe him? Are we robbing God, defrauding God of our bodies that we owe everything to him? I guarantee you, if we have, I believe we'll have a mind like this in heaven. I believe when we get to heaven that we'll look back on our lives. We're not going to be mindless blobs up there whose memories have been wiped. I believe you'll remember perfectly every way in which we, myself included, robbed God during the time that we had, the little bit of time that we had here on this earth. Have I robbed God from the Bible study that I owe him? To learn more about his character? Have I robbed God? Just name the ways. You could rob him of his Sunday. You could rob him of the prayers you owe him. You could rob him of you could rob him of the funds or the goods that you should give to him. Think about it. Y'all are very quiet tonight. But it makes me nervous too. It makes me nervous too. But maybe that, maybe things like that is what withholds us from revival. You never know. It, was so, it would be so strange for a man to sit up on a street corner and preach today 
Matter of fact, Brother Asher and I were at the ballpark the other night. It wasn't a Sunday. And there's nothing wrong with playing ball. I'm not, I played ball, football, you know. I'm not saying all of that's wrong. But I was walking through the crowd. There was hundreds of people there. And I was just kind of joking. I said to Brother Asher, I said, you know, what do you think would happen if I just got right here in the middle of all of this and just started preaching salvation by grace? What would happen? Think about those things. What's it going to take for us to wake up? We owe him everything. These people misunderstood the character and nature of God. And they were robbing him of his Sabbath. They were robbing him of their giving. They were robbing him of their time and attention. They were robbing him of their marriages because they were foolishly ending their marriages. See? So the Lord being the merciful God that he is, he says in chapter 3 verse 1, Behold, I will send my messenger. That word messenger, as I said, it means Malachi. The common name, the proper name is Malachi, but it means a deputy. He said, I will dispatch my deputy. I will send my deputy to handle this situation. And notice the reference. He says, behold, I will send my messenger. We know for a fact that that is a reference to John the Baptist who would come 400 years later. The Gospels invoke that. The Gospels refer to this. And they say of John the Baptist, this is exactly who Jesus was talking about. So he's pointing them to a time a few hundred years down the road when he's going to send the forerunner of Christ. You say, how do we know this is Christ? Read the language very carefully. Behold, I will send my messenger and watch this language. He shall prepare the way before me. You see that? This is Christ talking. This is a big deal. He says, I'm going to send my messenger. That's going to be John the Baptist. He's going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah. That's what he says in the last chapter of Malachi. And he's going to prepare the way before me. And I will suddenly come to my temple, even the messenger of the covenant. There's another messenger, another deputy. You see, the first deputy is dispatched and he's the cousin of Jesus that's going to prepare the way for the, you might say it like this, you know, there goes the deputy and here comes the sheriff. The messenger of the covenant is Jesus Christ. And who shall abide the day of his coming when he comes? He says, you want justice? You want me to rain down fire and brimstone? He said, you don't want me to do that. And furthermore, when I come, I'm not coming with justice. He said, I'm coming with mercy. Because it's not just. It's not just for the Lord to have to pay for the sins of wicked sinners. You see, that's not just. That's not fair. But it's merciful, right? And that's the covenant of God. It's mercy. So you're robbing me and you're misrepresenting me to the people. He said, I'm going to show you the true representation of me when I come to my temple. And he does that in the Gospels. He chases out the money changers. He suddenly comes to his temple. And there he demonstrates mercy. He says, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. Y'all remember that? Now, It's not a very uplifting message, is it? Very down and condemning on them. But I'll leave you with this. I'll leave you with this in verse 16. There were some people that listened. I believe I'm talking to some people that listened to the Word of God. I don't think you'd be here ever if it wasn't for listening to the Word of God. In in verse 16, 17, and 18 of Malachi 3, that's three of my favorite Old Testament verses. I've got a lot of them, but these are some of my favorite. And in the midst of all of these robbers of God... In the midst of them defrauding, look at what he says. There were some people that were still trying to serve God. Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another. 
And the Lord hearkened and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. And they shall be mine. The Lord's bragging now. It's a little more positive, isn't it? Saith the Lord of hosts. In that day when I make up my jewels. You hear that? And I will spare them as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. Then shall ye return and discern between the righteous and the wicked. Between him that serveth God and him that serveth him not. You Bible readers know what that's a reference to. That's a reference to the end of time. At the great white throne judgment one day. But the immediate application of that is... He sees some people down there among the robbers of God who are doing what they're supposed to be doing. Isn't that encouraging to know? What were they doing? First of all, he says, they are a peculiar treasure to me. They're a peculiar treasure. But what were they doing? Notice it says they feared the Lord. They had reverence for Jehovah. And it caused them to depart from the evil that they were doing. If you fear the Lord... You'll be in a constant mode of checking what you're doing, checking what you're saying, checking where you're going, and then just kind of amending that. The fear of the Lord is to depart from evil. And that's not something you do one time. You're in a constant mode of departing and checking and departing and checking. You know, the departing flights at the airport, you know, those departing flights, they're in constant departure. This one leaves in, this one leaves then, this one leaves at another time. And as a child of God, we need to be in constant departure mode when it comes to the things of evil that are around us and within us. They departed from evil. They heard what Malachi said. I'm robbing God. I need to change this. Notice it also says this. They that fear the Lord spake often one to another. That's the communion of the saints. They'd get together and they'd visit and they'd fellowship. I'm not saying that everything that they talked about was only about God, but their conversation had something ongoing to do with discussion about God. It says they spake often one to another. They were friendly one to another. They kept up uh, communion and fellowship with one another. And then notice it says in the last line of verse 16, it says them, uh, them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name in their private meditation, his sacred name was in their mind. It was a fruitful source of constant meditation. Think about the things that are coming at us all the time and we don't even ha hardly have time to stop and think. I've got earbuds in my ear. I've got something going on on the TV. I've got something rattling my mind all the time and I just don't have time to stop and think. But God was watching these folks who were stopping to think about Him. If you should start meditating about God and the glory of God, it's like David said, these things are just too wonderful for me. I'm ashamed to say this, but I bet I saw Raiders of the Lost Ark 75 or 80 times growing up. When I finally got it on VHS, I thought I had struck gold. I'm sad to say this, but I could probably quote almost the entire dialogue of Raiders of the Lost Ark because it was my favorite movie of all time. I wanted to grow up and be an archaeologist because of Indiana Jones. Not Harrison Ford, but Indiana Jones. It was constantly in my mind, you know, coming at me. I, my default was to sit down and watch that movie on the VHS. We need to shut those things off. We are all little fanatics within our heart and our mind. We're all that way. Take the buds out. Cut the phone off. Step back. 
Look up. Meditate from the Word of God. Think about what God has done for you. Think about the glories of God and the wonder of God. It will make you like a child and you'll be in constant wonder over the glories of God. The Lord saw these people doing that. And not only that, look, it says that a book of remembrance was written for them. You know what that's a reference to? That's a reference to the the ledgers or the chronicles of the kings. You might think about Esther where the king, he couldn't sleep one night. And so he sat back and he said, come and just read the chronicles to me. Read about my exploits and all the things that have happened in my kingdom. And so somebody took the chronicle and opened it up where a book of remembrance had been written and they read in the very spot where it said that Mordecai had saved the king's life. And the king says, huh, well, I, I, I forgot about that. What did we ever do for him? They said, nothing. You hadn't done anything for him. Well, call in somebody out in the court and tell them, let's go do something for Mordecai. Right now, it was practically the middle of the night. <laughs> That's what this is a reference to. That your king writes in, in the book of remembrance, these are my jewels. They're thinking about me. They're having commerce, interaction with one another based on their connection with me. You see? Don't you want that? Isn't that a glorious thing? To think that God in heaven would stop what He's doing? You know, all this stuff is going on in heaven. The cherubims, you know, they're crying holy, holy, holy. All these things are going on. You know, maybe the angel chorus over here is striking up. you got the millions upon billions of spirits of God's people. You know, over there somewhere is the, is, is the body of Elijah, the body of Enoch. You know, they're, they're there in bodily form. Christ is there in bodily form. And all this is going on in heaven. And also the Lord says, stop, stop, stop. You know, calm it down for just a minute. Well, what do you need, Lord? Bring me a notepad and a pen, and let's write down. You know, so-and-so down there at Beth- who goes to Bethlehem, they're getting together and they're talking about me. And maybe even beyond that, so-and-so that's at Bethlehem down there, they're off somewhere. They've shut their earbuds off. Can you believe it, angels? They've turned off the phone. <laughs> They've turned off the TV. They've turned off the things that rattle their mind, and they're down there thinking about me. Write that name down. That's, that's the picture that's given right there. The king makes a book of remembrance of those who are thinking about him, talking about him, interacting about him. See, there's more than just all negative in the book of Malachi. A lot of it is pretty negative. But the purpose of him pointing out these negative things is to call them into communion with him, to call them to see who he really is. To stop misrepresenting his character and represent him in a way that is accurate. Instead of robbing him, to give back to the Lord. Because you can never repay the Lord for what he's done for you. But to give back in a way that doesn't defraud him. Lord, I've committed myself to this and I'm going to stick with it. And it doesn't mean the Lord's going to hammer you whenever you fall short. No, the Lord is merciful. That's what he's teaching them here. My messenger is coming. My messenger of the covenant. And he is merciful. You want judgment? No, you don't. You want mercy. So you see, notice how the Lord says, even in the midst of this, I've got those people down there that are paying attention to me, that are talking about me, that are loving me, that are serving me, that are meditating on me. Can you, Brother Tim, can you honestly say that my puny little thoughts, my puny little meditations result on the Lord Result in the Lord looking upon me and saying, there's my prize. There's my jewel. That's absolutely what it's teaching. For me, now that makes me want to think about the Lord more. And the Lord says, he says, try me. You know, try it. 
I'll prove to you that I'll do exactly what I say, that my character is exactly what it says. And I believe this would cure a lot of self-focus and a lot of depression and a lot of issues that we face. When we start thinking about how God views us, we are his jewels. You are his prize. You are bought with a price. And it was the price of his son. You say, well, I don't see any value about myself. Join the club. I don't either. The value that I have, the value that you have is because of the value that the son of God had. He made you valuable when you had no value.